Hello everyone, it's September 29th, 2020. This week we're doing a summary of everything spaceflight that's gotten the old pandemic pushback, as I've just now decided to start calling it. Then we talked to Dr. Panos Siotras about dynamic control systems, satellite refueling, all kinds of stuff. So stick around and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 278 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So uh, I didn't put it, I was about to make this a topic that we were going to talk about, but I guess it will be anyway. So um, just at the top of the show, U.S. Space Command's improvement to uh, their orbital debris tracking, which I found pretty interesting oh, because yeah, yeah, yeah. because one thing I didn't know was that they don't calculate all potential collisions um, as far as debris goes. That's just with active satellites. So there's a whole lot of debris out there that could still you know, have a conjunction and yeah, you would know it, but now they've made an update and it's just a software improvement, which is kind of amazing. They haven't had to change anything. It's just software. And now they can do it all, any potential collision, no matter what it is. So what, nice. what was the, what was the update? It was actually just a software rewrite by, I think one specific person. It says the software coding for this project was done by staff sergeant Bork, B-O-U-R-Q-U-E. Burke. Burke. Oh, is that Burke? Okay. Burke. I would think that's Burke. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So staff sergeant Bailey Burke, technical lead for the squadron's combat development division but i guess that means he's also you know highly adept in software coding because like it was just a coding some kind of change to software and now they can track all potential collisions or at least calculate all potential collisions um the the actual tracking has not changed which is to say they're not tracking more objects than before it's just that now they can actually see if there's any potential collision coming up and that's neat because i didn't know that i thought that they were able to do those types of analyses but that was not the case up until now so 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 david so so like the number, right? It's always something like, you know, they can track things, you know, down to one centimeter mm-hmm. or whatever. Like they've always been throwing that out. But now yeah. that, that always meant that they can identify things down to one centimeter. But now they're actually tracking potential collisions with objects down to one centimeter. Is that correct? Yeah, because mm. because before it was just like active satellites and probably also large objects that were debris. But now it can be everything because they simply have the ability to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so big, small, doesn't matter. Well, that's good because there's only more stuff up there. So I guess let's uh, let's talk about mission delays. Um, and these are all a result of the pandemic. And I yeah. guess we haven't done a comprehensive list of everything that's getting pushed back as a result of that. Um, but it's quite a bit, actually, because mm. um, we've kind of had this or at least I've had this notion in my head that things are more or less moving on as normal, just, you know, with people wearing masks. But that's not really the case, actually. So now we're going to get into, you know, what the actual results of this are. And the first thing on the list is actually JWST. But... I mean, that's already slipped so much, you know, what's a couple more months? <laughs> oh, boy, don't say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, at the beginning of the year, actually, well, up up until July, JWST was scheduled to fly March 2021, and uh, now it's slipped uh, back in July, it, it slipped down to October 2021. So that's, you know, a total of seven months. Um, luckily, uh, the Ariane 5 schedule looks like it should still uh, fit that launch. Like it looks like it should be okay. Um, so I wanted to break this down really quick. All of this is coming from an article from space news, which is really fantastic. They did all the, all the legwork here, but, uh, three plus months of this seven month delay is due to the pandemic. Um, basically, um, you know, back in April or so work stopped completely. Um, and then it went 
back up to a slow pace and now they're they're saying they're pulling near full shifts so i'm going to assume that a near full shift results in near full speed work you know who, who knows how how close it is so two months of the delay is actually um not yet needed it's it's just adding reserve on which is you know always a good thing um mm -hmm. so at the beginning of 2020 they had two months of reserve by this point they've actually eaten up one of those months or by july they had eaten up a month so when they added two additional months in july they they got themselves back up to three months of reserve so then uh three plus months plus two months gives us two minus months i guess around two months mm -hmm. um and and that portion of the seven month delay uh is for testing apparently i don't know why they're having to add additional time on for testing I, like i don't know why this wasn't already accounted for i mean it was already accounted for i don't know why this is added on um on top but great news. They finished their acoustic testing. They finished their deployment testing. We, I think we covered that a while ago. And right now, as, as we're recording, they're working on vibration testing. Um, so that's pretty good. Despite these delays, additional funding is not expected to be required. Uh, remember, Congress capped the project at $8.8 .8 Um, They still have reserves to eat up, and they expect that they're going to eat them up, but mm -hmm. they, they think that the reserves... Um, will will do the trick. So, oh, you know, JWST yeah. almost got canceled. Um, the the 2021, I believe the 2021 funding uh, proposal included canceling JWST, um, which you know sucks. Um, <laughs> but I, I I guess at this point I endorse the sunk cost fallacy because it's mm -hmm. a way to get JWST into the air to to justify it, and I, I really want to see it. Justified yeah. in the air, I guess. I, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel too. So I can't. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Yeah, it, it's funny. I was listening to. Uh, there's a fantastic podcast called Flash Forward. It used to be a one-person podcast, and now uh, Rose, the host, um, has enough money to uh, hire a part-time producer, which is really cool. But you know, it's it's a super slim project, and it's Rose's full-time job, and it it feels like any you know, huge, you know, larger team, like a, like a small to mid-sized team project. It's, it's really, really fantastic. And what Flash Forward does is they take a concept that represents a possible future and they do, they start the show out with a little sketch from the future, um, kind of illustrating what this world would be like. And they come back to the present and talk about what makes that future possible or not so possible. It's, it's really fantastic. They talk about a lot of, um, really important topics and they do so in a very data driven realistic way they don't buy into hype they talk about hype and why this is exciting and they say okay but let's be realistic um and so rose covered light pollution uh in a recent episode that i listened to at the end of it she, she was kind of talking about why light pollution is something that we need to worry about but also something that's fairly easy to fix because you can turn lights off in a way that you can't whole carbon out of the ocean um you know it's when we when we decide that we need to fix it we can fix it right away 
you know, it's, it's literally turning a light off. And she also talked about how we need to balance our understanding of whether it needs to be fixed because it's not a binary decision. You can't just say this is good or this is bad. Uh, light pollution has negative negative consequences and positive consequences, right? Providing light to people is not a human right, I guess, but it's, it's like a human resource. Like if you're an underdeveloped world, being able to have access to lighting is not guaranteed. And it's also fundamental to being able to develop and, and, um, move forward as humanity. And so, um, all of this to say, she said that she gets the question fairly often. Why should we spend money on science when we have people starving? And she's like, Mm -hmm. well, it's important. Relatively speaking, it's not actually that much money. And the benefits, relatively speaking, are huge. Like, this is really important. And I kind of feel that way about JWST. Like, yes, it's a lot of money. $8.8 billion is a lot of money. But in the context of things that we could cut to spend on people, you know, in different ways, it's not that much money. And the return on investment is huge. Like, the inspiration and the the joy that comes out of this kind of science, the understanding of the world Mm -hmm. around us is fundamental. Like we, we don't live in, we live in a built environment here on the surface of earth, but the rest of the universe is not a built environment. And we need to understand and explore it as part of balancing out the built environment that we live in. So I, I just, I love JWST. It just makes me so excited. Like it's going to do amazing things. This is going to be a, like a step function in terms of like new understanding and discovery about the universe. And so for that much money, I mean, I think it's worth it. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like you were saying, Ben, I mean, this is an investment in the future. So you, so like there are benefits. It's just that you don't see them immediately. And that's kind of the Mm -hmm. short sightedness that some people have about things that, you know, don't seem relevant now, but eventually they will be. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then we have a a number of other uh, missions. These are, these are all prospective missions, I guess, missions that haven't flown yet. They're not operational. So then we have the IXPE, the Imaging X-ray Polarimetry Explorer. Um, That was a originally supposed to fly in May 2021, and now it slipped to no earlier than September 2021. So IXPE was uh, hugely affected by Marshall's three-month shutdown, Um, like they closed their doors for three months. And so it it pushed their schedule back so far that they don't have anything but an NET right now. And so they have a, a big review um, scheduled for October. So, so next month. And at that point, they're hoping, uh, to come up with a, a new launch date. Um, then there's, uh, NGRST, the Nancy Grace Roman telescope, formerly W first. NGR has slipped also sort of an unknown amount. Uh, I guess even mm. more unknown. I expect we, we have an NET for, uh, NGR. We, we have nothing. Um, so it was originally planned to fly at latest in 2026. Um, and right now we, we know that they've slipped. We don't know how much, um, their CDR, their critical design review is coming up sometime next year. I believe in the, the first half of next year. And so in preparation for that, they're expecting to have a new schedule, um, set by December, by the end of the year, sort of in preparation for their uh, CDR. 
Um, then there's Sphere X, which also slipped, sort of an unknown unknown. Sphere X stands for the Spectrophotometer for the History of the Universe, Epic of Reionization, and Ices Explorer. Words that are dropped from that acronym are Universe and Ices. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Explorer gets gets two letters. Anyway, um, so Sphere X is uh, an exploration class uh, vehicle. So, um, or it's not exploration explorer class so the the explorer uh program included wise and tests um and so sphere x has a quote-unquote notional launch date of 2024 they're so early in the schedule that they're you know kind of just pointing at a map with a blindfold on and going ah, how about then <laughs> um or i guess a calendar but that's another thing that we hang on the wall that actually <laughs> measures dates anyway so they, they have this notional launch date of 2024 and right now they're saying it, it might not hold and i think that's probably pretty insightful i don't think it's gonna hold um if you know if we're looking at three-month delays on missions that are in assembly right now. Then there's uh, SRISM. How do we even pronounce this? X-R-I-S-M. CRISM. CRISM. There we go. Thank you. I knew I knew there was a good... Yeah, so uh, CRISM has also slipped an unknown amount. Uh, CRISM is, of course, um, operated by JAXA, but NASA is contributing instruments to it. Originally, it was scheduled to fly in early 2022, and right now they don't have a new launch date. Now, interestingly enough, uh, CRISM was delayed partially due to the pandemic. I mean, that's just going to happen. Um, but they actually had uh, sort of a more a more immediate delay. Um, they have a liquid helium uh, supply on board uh, for cooling the telescope and uh, for, for cooling the instrument or instruments, I guess. Um, and one of their flight doers, like one of the doers that's going on the vehicle developed a leak. So it's actually kind of crazy. Um, NASA sent in-person uh, assistance. They actually flew people out to Japan uh, to help them fix the issue. And this represents the first international travel for NASA since March. Um, so it's pretty cool that, you know, that Chrism gets that, uh, that scouts badge, I guess the, the girl scouts badge. <laughs> and, uh, then the space news article, um, has a, a great quote. Um, they're reporting th this whole report that they did comes from a meeting of the astronomy and astrophysics advisory committee. Uh, and from that, they, the teleconference, they also pulled a quote from Paul Hertz, who's the director of the astrophysics division of NASA. Um, and it's a, it's a good quote. He was talking about how, um, you know, these are all delays happening to missions that haven't flown yet, but their operational missions have been largely unaffected. Uh, he said, quote, it turns out that over the years, the pressure we have put on our missions through our senior reviews to continually reduce their costs of costs of operations and to go lights out operations, uh, has created exactly the right capabilities that we need to be able to carry out science missions remotely during a pandemic. Hey, that's pretty cool. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So David, I, th I feel like that, that might be why you were, you know, you had that sense you, you mentioned at the top of the, the, the news where you were thinking, you know, I thought, you know, things were proceeding smoothly, right? You just put on a mask mm -hmm, and, yeah. you know, push along. But that's, yeah, I think that's because, you know, things had been proceeding smoothly for all the, you know, the operational uh, missions, ones that are already up and running. Yep. Could be worse. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's sum up. All these are, you know, months to unspecified, which hopefully is only months. Yeah. I guess there's nothing that's uh, where you have like such a, a tight window and a two, three year gap or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like that's not happening at yeah. least. Like nothing's getting pushed back several years. So yeah, the only one with kind of a window is Chrism because that was the one that like the uh, Hitomi was supposed to launch or, and that, uh, or it did launch and it, you know, it got in orbit and then it started tumbling around. That was the one that kind of spectacularly tumbled and then broke apart. And so that's kind of like we need a <laughs> we need this space this X-ray telescope up there because that's yeah you know a really big part of astronomy. And Chandra and XMM are like old enough to go to college now. I think uh, <laughs> at, least appro- at least approaching it. You know they're they're they've been around a while. <laughs> yeah, what I mean, what a bummer that we lost Atomi. I remember talking about that. Uh, must have been like two years ago, right? When did it? Uh, 2016. Yeah. So I, I remember yeah. talking about that way back when. What what a weird uh, a weird failure mode. So uh, mm. so disappointing. I don't recall the events too well. So it spun apart, like it mm-hmm. like did it actually come apart just due to rotation. Yeah, I think wow. yeah, I think it just started tumbling, and then that you know wasn't designed for that, and so some of the more sensitive you know yeah. So solar These telescopes rays, are so long, and yeah, the solar rays are an obvious kind of choice. I wonder if just the fact though that X-ray telescopes tend to be so long means that I don't know they're more sensitive in in that direction as well. You know? Yeah, I I think the telescope broke in half, but I don't, I don't think anybody knows. I just the bit that sticks out, you know, it's on a on a fairly you know lightweight truss because it, yeah. it has to be because of space. So, just the usual three short and sweets this week. Uh, first up, Blue Origin pursues space station development. Um, although it'd be nice if they got a rocket off the indoor. Whatever, I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> I, I'm just kind of, I'm still angry about it. So, Blue Origin has uh, has recently posted a job opening for an orbital habitat formulation lead. The job would require leading the development of low Earth orbit commercial space stations and mentions Blue Origin's ultimate goal of millions of people living and working in space. The near term goal specified in the job description is to identify and develop partnerships and places the emphasis on identifying the needs of NASA and working closely with the agency as a potential customer, though NASA is currently not seeking solicitations for a free-flying station, um, but they hope to change their mind, I guess. Yeah, once once they're there, it, it'll get used. All right, a price tag has been set for on-orbit publicity photos for the low price, and I don't entirely mean that sarcastically, for the low price of $128,000, SD Lauder is sending 10 bottles of face cream to the ISS and in return getting publicity photos back from the cupola. To be clear, no astronauts uh, or gravity will be in the photos, just the bottles of cream and the earth below. While it seems like a fantastic foot in the door for commercial ISS applications and a really good way for SD Lauder to spend ad dollars, not everyone is a fan. Uh, There have been lots of gripes from spaceflight fans about a lack of nobility, but those can be discounted. Senator Gene Shaheen Democrat from New Hampshire, uh, says the price doesn't cover the total cost of the launch and on-orbit ops, and she may well be right. However, uh, McAllister and Bridenstine, when asked, could not confirm the NASA cost. And finally, the ISS leak has been narrowed down to two modules. Since last September, ISS officials have noticed a loss of air in the station, the rate of which had increased over the summer. 
While the leak hasn't reached dangerous levels, Chris Cassidy, Anatoly Ivanishin, and Ivan Wagner have been systematically closing off modules and performing tests to identify the source. Now the leaking module has been narrowed down to two in the Russian orbital segment. Zvezda, the first component of the station, and Poisk, which is used for spacewalk preparations and as a port for docking spacecraft. Testing these modules will prove tricky, since Zvezda's life support systems connect directly to the Soyuz that the three crew members would need to escape the station in an emergency. Officials are now considering how to safely isolate the two modules or use specialized detectors that won't require sealing them off. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have a really cool, uh, again, elaboration. It, you know, it's never a correction comment or anything else, but yeah, we have um, some very interesting information on the Bishop module, which we talked about last week, um, and this comes from Andrew Z. I can say that at least I was a little bit confused about the exact function of one of the grapple fixtures. It was one of the updated ones. I forget what they call that, the data, and I can't remember the letters, but you know, the mm-hmm. ones that have power in video and exactly how those would be used, but uh, we got an interesting email from Andrew that uh, explains a little bit more about that. Um, so basically, he pointed us at the YouTube video that uh, NanoRacks had put out, which I I didn't watch, <laughs> and I should have. And unfortunately, yeah. uh, it sounds like uh, Dennis watched and then didn't, what, I guess, internalize the information that was in there. But here, here's the... Um, Here's the lowdown. And I was kind of absent from the conversation because I just, I didn't know anything about Bishop really. Um, so there are two grapple fixtures on Bishop. One, we're going to say that it's pointed up. So if you imagine the common birthing mechanism at the bottom of the airlock and the dome at the top of the airlock along that axis, I'm going to say that's up, right? Then there's also one pointed out, um, which is sort of radial from that axis. Um, so the fixture that points up is for Canadarm2 to grab. Um, in particular, it's going to be how it's extracted from the uh, dragon's trunk. Um, but then anytime they are moving and pointing and doing things with the module, uh, they're going to be using the up fixture. The out fixture is for kind of fixed attachment is how I'm going to describe it. So like setting it down on a table, right? Um, kind of like how a, a coffee mug has got a handle for you to pick it up and manipulate it and a foot for you to set it down on the table and leave it there. Um, and so uh, as far as I know, they're only planning on um, attaching it one place, but you know, I'm sure that there are some options. Um, so particularly they can uh, on the MBS, the mobile mobile base station for um for the arm which is there's the ceta cart the crew translation c-e-t-a um i'm not going to look it up because i'm getting bored um but um they have a fixture called poya the payload oru accommodation and basically it, it looks just like the grapple fixture uh, or not the grapple fixture, the uh, latching end effector on the end of the arm, um, but it's stuck to the MBS. And so what you can do is grab Bishop uh, from the up pointing fixture and bring it over to the, uh, the POA, the POA and um, have the POA grab it by the out uh, fixture. Um, and then that way you can let go of it and do whatever you want inside of it. Um, and so what's really cool is that frees up the arm to either work on 
other tasks. Like if you just need to drop it and go do something else. But what's really powerful about this is that then they can go and grab Dexter and manipulate the payloads inside the airlock. And they can take them and put them on an ORU, uh, an orbital replacement unit. Um, it's sort of a generalized stowage location and there, there are a bunch of ORUs, but they can, they can put them there. They can also use one of the extra features of Bishop, which we didn't talk about, which are, um, sort of docking ports or installation points around the perimeter, um, just above the CBM, the common birthing mechanism. Um, and so they can attach external payloads to the airlock. And so you can use Bishop to do long-term space exposure or observation or whatever experiments that you want on the outside of station without having to install them anywhere else. You can just put them on the outside of Bishop and then reattach Bishop and, you know, um, do, do whatever you need, load up the next payload or, you know, um, whatever it takes. And so it's, you know, it's a super flexible piece of equipment and it, you know, it's potentially going to double the amount of exterior work that ISS can do. Obviously it's going to be dependent on customer load, but they're hoping I think to get like eight to 10 uses out of it every year, maybe, uh, maybe up to eight because I think, I think the JAXA airlock does about 10 a year. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, almost doubling the work that you can do outside the station every year. And that's, that's really fantastic. Um, so in the show notes will be a link to the YouTube video, which has some very relaxing music and some very cheesy sound effects. Um, but it's, it's just beautiful. I mean, uh, I, I love any Doug animation that I can get my eyeballs on. Um, Doug is the exterior ISS modeling software that they use. And it's just, it, it looks iconic and wonderful and it can do all these animations and stuff. So great. So did I explain that well, guys? Yeah. Okay. And then uh, we have another comment coming in from Andrew. And this is just a cool image. Um, somebody did a size comparison of all the HLS landers. And we've seen things similar to this, but this one's just pretty. Um, so we'll have a link to that. Um, it comes from Twitter user BrickMac. Right. We're about to go over to our interview segment. Before we do that, this interview was not sponsored, but IEEE uh, reached out to ask if we wanted to do some interviews and they, they've done that in the past. Um, and, uh, we've gotten some great interviews, um, out of it. And this time they asked us to, um, point listeners at a publication. Uh, is how I'm going to say it, and then I'm going to explain it. But they have a publication called um, IEEE Transmitter, and they wanted us to talk about it. And it, it's pretty cool, so I think we're happy to do it. So IEEE Transmitter is a multimedia content hub that provides an engineer's perspective on the latest tech news and innovations uh, to help you cut through the noise, is what they say. Cut through the noise and get to stories that are most important to you. Um, it is actually pretty cool. It's not a periodical. Um, it's more like how Wikipedia has a bunch of articles. So you can go in and look at different uh, categories um, and see uh, both written content, like text content, as well as images and video. In particular, uh, they pointed out a sustainability category. And so that's what will be linked in the show notes. And then um, finally, IEEE wanted us to talk about their organization real quick. So IEEE is the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to the advancement of technology for the benefit of humanity. Thank you so much to IEEE for hooking us up with uh, this interview and a couple that are coming up as well.
All right, welcome to the interview segment. Today we have um, Dr. Panayotis Tsiotras, uh, IEEE fellow and professor and David and Andrew Lewis chair, Guggenheim School of Aerospace Engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, welcome, Panos. How's, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's doing well. Great. So um, you're a, an aerospace engineer and you, and you work in control theory mostly. And I think we're all like super excited to get to learn some uh, GNC theory from you today. So <laughs> I'll um, do my best. Yeah. Well, I mean, th these kind of conversations are, are so fascinating because we wind up learning things that we didn't know that we were missing. Um, and so th this is is going to be a lot of fun. So first, can we talk about um, your work at, at the Georgia Institute of Technology? What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And and how do you, when you describe your job to people, what do you say? Well, yeah, this is, uh, well, I am a professor here. I've been here at Georgia Tech since 1998. Well, wow, long time. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and my area is uh, uh, control. Um, there's a group here in fly dynamics and control. Uh, which deals with, uh, for people who don't know, uh, it's uh, the people who develop the algorithms that run inside the uh, computers and the navigation systems and so on of uh, most of aerospace systems. So it's actually a pretty theoretical topic, if you ask me. There's a lot of math involved mm -hmm. and I spend a lot of time studying mathematics and, for and formulas and that of that nature. So... Um, mm -hmm. I have a group of about research group of about fifteen students uh, right now uh, who work in uh, different aspects of control theory applied to uh, aerospace systems and ground vehicles and other stuff. Uh, and I uh, that's my research part. And then of course I'm an educator primarily since I'm at a university, mm -hmm. uh, and I teach classes and several classes for uh, for undergraduate classes in control. I'm just looking at your CV and and you publish. A lot. I'm assuming if I was to go and just look at papers on which you're the first author, um, you know, it wouldn't be as heavy, but I'm just seeing, you know, multiple papers a year. And so you spend a lot, you know, you do a lot of education, but you also do a, a lot of research, it looks like. Well, this is the job for a professor who is in a research intensive institution as Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yes, a lot of my work is, uh, is going to research. Um, now, you see, there's a lot of papers because I have a, a very productive group. Um, um, but the students actually uh, are primary authors uh, for these papers, um, and they're very productive. And we have uh, super good students here, super super smart students, uh, and they do most of the work. I consider myself as a conductor <laughs> in an orchestra, <laughs> so they do uh, they do the heavy lifting. Um, so first, I wanted to talk about um, the five DOF test bed that you have at Georgia Tech. It's called Astros, is that correct? Uh, yes, it's called Astros. Uh, uh, the uh, this uh, Autonomous spacecraft testing for robotics uh, operations in space. Uh, I thought it was a cool acronym. Uh, mm -hmm. Essentially, it's a it's a it's a simulator to simulate uh, spacecraft in orbit. Um, I'm fascinated about, of course, for about autonomous systems, robots, and things like that. And one thing that bothered me. Um, since graduate school, when I did uh, my PhD thesis in spacecraft control, actually, I was always disappointed by the fact that I was not able to test my algorithms. And I was very envious of uh, people in robotics that have these ground vehicles and things like that to, to test mm. in a real environment. It's very difficult to to test spacecraft control laws unless you are 
you know, a big company and you have like $50 million in your pocket. Um, so, <laughs> sure. so short of that, um, decided when I came to Georgia Tech to um, build a simulator facility uh, that is as close as possible to um, to simulating a spacecraft in, in orbit. So this is, uh, I can give you a little bit more information. We really didn't, but uh, this is essentially, a, 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 it's, it's a facility that based on air bearings that allows the motion of um, a platform, which are quote, quote unquote spacecraft uh, to test some of their controllers that we develop in the lab. Oh, interesting. Because I was immediately thinking that it was like a simulation simulation, like, you know, just software, but this is a physical thing. This is a physical thing. Yeah. Uh, you have We have, of course, high fidelity simulation environments in computers, but no, this is a physical platform. Uh, it's five degrees. It's translating and it's rotating. It doesn't go up and down. That's the only degree of freedom we don't have. So it's not a six degree of freedom. That'll be a cool thing to have, but uh, we don't have that far, but it, it is close enough. And it has all the uh, sensors and actuators um, that uh, real spacecraft has. Um, it has ray gyros, uh, moment gyros, uh, control moment gyros, uh, reaction wheels. Um, we put some cameras. It's pretty cool. I mean, you can you go to my mm -hmm. website, you can you have pictures there and you can see it. Yeah, I'm loving the uh, space kind of background <laughs> that I'm seeing. I don't know if that's a projector or just uh, oh, an yeah. image on the this wall. Is... But... <laughs> oh, you have Yeah, yeah. No, it, it is a projector, actually, uh, because some of the work we wanted to do is to uh, imagine that there is a spacecraft is orbiting the Earth and with a cameras is looking down um, so we had this uh, projection camera that projects um, the image from a low earth orbit so we can see what a spacecraft would see if it was in a low earth orbit if we want to test some of the image processing algorithms yeah so I'm, I'm wondering how much of the Astros is I guess do you do you swap out when you want to test different things I mean is, is the is the test bed basically in place in your testing components or are you doing more integrated testing at once or I mean how does that when we work? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a good question. Uh, when we built it, um, it actually took several years. It was built in you know over several periods of um, you know several several years, uh, mm. two, two stages. And now we did actually three third one. We did a complete uh, redesign of the electronics. So we did it such that the uh, platform has all the sensors and actuators that a typical spacecraft will have. Um, so it has actually, if you think about it, in some sense, it is. Uh, kind of over-actuated. It has thrusters, it has uh, momentum wheels, it has uh, uh, reaction wheels, it has CMGs, uh, control moment gyros, um, it has magnetometers, it has many, many devices. And the reason we want to do that is if in the future we want to simulate uh, a scenario with a spacecraft having, uh, you know, these types of actuators, uh, well, we can pick and choose, all right? Um, so right now we do not have the um, the need to to include something else. But in the future, who knows? Uh, we have some uh, things we want to do. For example, to install the, a second camera and a second uh, infrared camera and things like that for cases that some tests for want to do that we don't really have right now. But overall, mm -hmm. it has most of the. Um, sensors and actuators that a real spacecraft will have so we're we're pretty happy that it's 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 close to 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 a good system to a real system mm -hmm. yeah and, and i think it's worth pointing out that um like you said this is over actuated so this is for th this is a software test bed where you can put software in something very close to the real world 
uh, of space. I mean, I guess in the actual real world, this isn't a platform where you're building control hardware, like maybe a, a new CMG or something and putting it on the platform. This is already got all of the CMGs and momentum wheels and everything that you would already yeah, want. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. In my lab, we're primarily focusing on algorithm development. Um, that's basically the the GNC that we discussed earlier, the navigation mm -hmm. guidance control um, algorithms. So it's primarily um, it's mathematics and developing code. So yeah, we don't develop new hardware. This hardware um, uh, was developed uh, by uh, you know some of the commercial, some of them by uh, companies. Uh, so it's mainly uh, we do spend some time to do the integration, of course, and some of the electronics we design in house. Uh, but that's not what we're focusing on. We're, I mean, we're not focusing on designing a new camera. If you, it's not, we're not an instrumentation lab, if that's what you mean. We're primarily right. a lab that develops uh, controllers and we implement it and. We have a very high degree of confidence based on the validity or the fidelity rather of the of the platform that if it works in our platform, it will work in a, uh, most likely in a real world. Of course, they, they, more things need to be done, but we have a high degree of confidence because of the fidelity of the of the platform that we have. And I think that's the, the mistake that would be easy to make is to come into this conversation assuming that we're talking about hardware, but this is all software, um, which is... Fan, like fascinating. Like we don't get to talk about software often enough. So I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so could you talk about some of the things that you've, um, tested out using Astros? Yeah. We, uh, where we have a project, current project that we have actually is related to a previous project that we had. The focus right now, um, well, yeah, right now I can tell you a little bit to what we did earlier. Um, well, let's start earlier, actually. So the first thing we did um, several years back uh, when we first built that it was to test uh, how the uh, actuators on the platform uh, work. Um, the, this platform use uh, control moment gyros um, as one of the actuators. I'm not sure if you're familiar to control moment gyros, or should I explain what a control moment gyro is to the to the audience? Yeah, you know, I th I think most of our listeners will will. No, but let let's go over the basics real quick just to make sure we're all on the on the same page. Yeah, it's a control moment gyro, a device that is used very often on spacecraft, um, especially if you want to move the spacecraft around very fast or you want to create big torques. Um, this is a way of changing momentum, basically, right? So it's kind of the it's, it's a conservation of momentum type of principle. Um, so anyway, this is we have um, we have this control moment gyros on um, on Astros and uh, using these devices in real life could create problems. They have the benefits, but they have some drawbacks. And some of the drawbacks is that they, they can get into singularities, like they lock in positions that you cannot generate torques. Uh, basically, it can happen. Um, mm. So anyway, so one, we, one thing we did um, some time ago was uh, develop, validate some of the controllers that um, use this control moment gyros. Also, at the time, there was uh, the idea of uh, using this uh, spinning wheels. Basically, it's a spinning wheel, right, that you can gimbal. That's how it works, that you change the direction of the angular momentum. This how the principle works. Uh, but since you have spinning wheels, there was the idea there that uh, uh, you can use the spinning wheels to store energy, all right, so can get rid of the batteries. Uh, so this idea has been around for some time. But if you accelerate or decelerate the wheels to store energy or retract energy uh, from the spinning wheels, if you have such a device, uh, that it parts uh, torques in the spacecraft. So it has to be in a coordinated fashion. So we did uh, experiments, I think, back in almost two, at 15 years ago where uh, as far as I know, we're first to demonstrate that this can be done, at least in principle, we were able to to control the energy on the wheels and also control the spacecraft around. So that was one of the first experiments we did. Um, so recently, 
since you mentioned what we're doing these days. Um, so we're focusing primarily on perception uh, and we're using cameras to um, to uh, circumnavigate around an object in space um, for proximity operation. And this could be a spacecraft or could be an asteroid. And um, I can go into greater detail if you're interested in. So yeah, yeah, I, and I kind of wanted to split things into like talking about attitude control first, and then talking about sure. um, orbital mechanics and uh, uh, optical navigation kind of separate. Okay. But this this idea of using um, CMGs for energy storage is really fascinating because CMGs you've already got the the wheel spinning and. Sure. You know, you, you push against that angular momentum that the wheel has instead of, um, what's it called? A, like a torque wheel? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A reaction wheel or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a reaction wheel, right. Um, so, so you've already got this mass spinning. And so you were looking at spinning it faster or slower to store energy in, instead of a battery, right? Yes. Um, I mean, like literally replacing a battery with this flywheel that you already have sitting around. Yeah, that was the idea. I mean, people have been looking at this uh, several years. I don't think that uh, people have built anything like that, but this wheel, mm -hmm. this idea of spinning, of sorry, of uh, of storing energy in terms of kinetic energy has been around mm -hmm. uh, for for many years. For spacecraft, makes sense if you if you make it work. Um, it's not that easy as it seems, but the principle is sound. Uh, basically, you can get rid of the, the batteries because you already have wheels, and batteries have problems in space as well. We know the thermal conditioning and all that. After a while, as you know, uh, charge and discharge the batteries every 90 minutes if you're in a low orbit you know i don't know <laughs> after a while mm -hmm. they, they if you recharge them so many times they they, they go bad right uh, so uh, you have to replace them that's not very easy um, spinning wheels um, unless unless something mechanical happens uh, you can spin them you know forever basically and you can slow you know <clears throat> it doesn't it doesn't mm -hmm. if you, especially if you're using magnetic bearings and things like that so anyway there has mm -hmm. been the idea of using this um, these wheels to store energy um, but uh, the problem of course is if you spin the wheel up and spin the wheel down to to store energy or get energy from the system uh, then there is a counter torque right you have you, <laughs> that will that will affect the attitude so there is a coupling between the power management and the attitude so you have to be careful how you do it and we basically uh, showed how this can be done if you use uh, cmgs which are variable speed cmgs actually right cmgs typically have a constant speed and you just move them around in a gimbal so these are variable speed cmgs it's a new device again there have some been some experiments since the last 15 years uh, using these devices for these types of applications. And they, we developed the control algorithm uh, or an algorithm that shows if you give me certain specification about an attitude profile that you want to follow, right, and a particular energy profile or power profile you want to follow, how you can control this. And you need at least, uh, you know, three of those in order to be able to do, typically we have four in our Astros, to be able to do coordinated uh, tracking between both of the power and the and the torques that you want to impart on the spacecraft. I'm glad you addressed the, the counter torques because that was kind of my question. I mean, could you maybe elaborate a little more, I guess, conceptually? I, I don't understand, kind of like just at a conceptual level, just what is it about variable speed CMGs that lets you 
not induce large torques on your spacecraft, say, when you're trying to draw power? Is it that you're just kind of putting in canceling torques or something? Or maybe I just don't understand. <laughs> yeah, essentially, you cancel the torques, right? Exactly. So if you have, uh, mm. I mean, think about the simplest scenario to think about. If you have, uh, let's say, forget about um, uh, CMGs, just look at uh, regular wheels, right? Uh, if you had just a one wheel, there's a counter torque. If you spin it, the spacecraft will spin on the opposite direction, right? That's the case of uh, this is how reaction wheels work. Now, of course, if you put two uh, wheels, one spinning one direction and one spinning the other direction, you can cancel this, right? So you can do that. Um, mm. Now, for CMGs, because the um, the momentum is uh, is also gimbaled, it's a little bit more complicated, right? So, but if you have two mm. of two of those or three of those, you can do the mathematics and the and the uh, and the torques that are generated by spinning up or spinning down the wheel can be cancelled all right so it's a, mm. i mean uh, um yeah but you need um, at least two or three of those in order to have they think about several vectors in space that cancel each other right that's kind mm -hmm. of what the idea is yeah you, you can work out the math and it works so initially it looks like black magic right but then you work out the mathematics <laughs> and if you believe the mathematics it works and people are surprised and i said you know well, yeah, it's going to work. I mean, I know the math. I trust my math. It's not surprising. I don't know why you're surprised. I mean, I was expecting. It's kind of boring after a while, right? You, if, if, you, if you believe in math and believe in, in the physics uh, and you do, it, you, you do your homework, uh, then it's not, there's no surprise. I said, yeah, it's going to work. I mean, why, why are you surprised? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing seeing that come together. Yeah, it did. It did. Yeah, it did. It's very satisfying. <laughs> so basically, when you're trying Transferring the energy is is that like um I guess what are the thermodynamic losses like compared to you know doing this with batteries like how does that work because I'm trying to imagine what's going into the system and what's coming out and if you're talking about like maybe you know transferring solar power mm. you know, to uh, the CMGs or if it's just like mm. you know like moving battery power around we haven't looked at uh, in our case we didn't look at the um, electronics and the uh, and the and the, the electronics of the uh, of the system at this level, we just looked at the level of uh, power energy uh, or power um, uh, balance, right? So if you have a device, mm. and again, we don't have a device, this is actually, in our case, uh, this is a CMG, it's a variable CMG. We, we, we're not able to, to take power out of the system. We don't have a, power, a motor generator connected. We just uh, have a motor that can uh, accelerate or decelerate the wheels. So acceleration or deceleration wheels is related to the way that uh, energy is stored. Uh, of course, we cannot take the energy out in our system. We just demonstrated that uh, if you want a particular uh, a power delivered to the bus, then you have to accelerate the wheels, you know, in the part particular rate. And uh, how you can do that without disturbing the spacecraft—that's what we. Uh, this is the algorithm we we develop. So okay. if you if you if you have a power, if you connect a power generator on the shaft, right, of the wheel, then you can take the the power and put it on the bus, and then you start thinking about all these uh, energy balance equations. So that was at this level that we demonstrated the, the feasibility of the of the problem. And, and from the electromechanical side, like, I don't know this, but my intuition is that it's actually a, a pretty good way of, of storing energy, I would think. Um, and the the power generation side of it is already well explored, like in, in um, hybrid and electric vehicles. We already do uh, mm -hmm. regenerative braking, um, which really, you know, turns your entire vehicle into a battery where you where you're, yeah. you know, quote unquote, storing energy in the in the forward momentum of the vehicle and then and then reclaiming it yeah. when you brake. Do, do you have um, sort of a knee jerk like intuition on how this would compare to batteries and, and energy losses? Because 
you know, batteries uh, are massively inefficient when you when you charge them. Yeah, I think the main issue with this type of uh, device, this is not so much what I just described, the algorithm to spin them up or spin them down. We demonstrated, but I think uh, for these types of applications, uh, the main, I think the main uh, question is, and I think maybe that's why it has not been uh, implemented in a real spacecraft, is materials and uh, fail-safe mm -hmm. uh, mechanisms. In order for these batteries, or quote-unquote mechanical batteries, right? Let's call them mechanical batteries, <laughs> to be competitive uh, in terms of uh, power per unit for, uh, uh, let's say, regular batteries, they have to spin pretty fast, okay? Um, so, and uh, at this, so we're talking about, you know, 50,000 RPM and so on, right? Um, so having a wheel spinning at that speed, uh, there's a lot of things can go wrong. Uh, someone said that, you know, a rotor that spins at this level is like a spaghetti, right? It's very flexible. So you have to, hmm. you have to, you have to control the flexibility of the motor and uh, what happens if this um, disintegrates. It's like, it's basically, it's like a grenade, right? So it's going to mm -hmm. destroy the spacecraft and you cannot, you cannot afford that. So there is a lot of store energy um, and that's kind of the main uh, issues with these types of devices, not so much the control. We develop of course, control algorithms, but I think uh, the people are focusing on how do you contain so much energy. It's a tremendous amount of energy for a wheel that spins, depending on, the, of course, uh, on the size, but at, at these speeds, right? <clears throat> so if you can go, um, uh, something can go wrong, it will be, uh, will be catastrophic. So people are looking at different materials, graceful ways of degradation and things like that. So, so that's far as... Uh, yeah, this is as far as I know about these types of devices. I don't know where this, mm. I don't know right now where the research is in this. I know where people were, I guess, 20 years ago when we did this, 15, 20 years ago, we did that work. Uh, was people were considering it. I'm not sure exactly where it is right now. Uh, as you know, for example, also batteries becoming better, right? Uh, because of the impact that can have on autonomous vehicles. So I think current, current battery technology <laughs> it's become maybe so good that you don't really have to go back and look at these devices anymore. Who knows? There's a joke about reinventing the wheel in there somewhere. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, the spacecraft makes sense that, yeah, yeah, just, sorry, one more. So the, for, for, for people have thought about these devices also for uh, backup systems, for, uh, you know, for, for, for at homes and things like that, right? Uh, because they can bring back uh, very quickly. You, you engage them, you have power very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the problem, uh, not the problem, I mean, for spacecraft, it kind of makes sense because you already have spinning wheels that's what i'm saying on the spacecraft for for for, for attitude control so that's why uh, it kind of makes sense for spacecraft you don't introduce something new you're just using already spinning devices for something else so it's kind of like a dual use uh, idea so uh can we talk about uh variable um variable speed cmgs a little bit more um so you were saying that they have counter rotating uh, wheels then is that right um no 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 they don't i'm saying is that if you didn't have uh well, if you do not have uh, spinning wheels uh, sorry variable speed cmgs then you may have uh you want to cancel the torque there was a question earlier how you cancel oh, uh, the momentum and i say that one way of canceling momentum if you have a spinning wheel is to have another wheel counter spinning that's one way of spinning but but you can cancel <clears throat> momenta even if they're not in the same direction, uh, if you have multiple wheels uh -huh. mm -hmm. aligned in space such that the three, the vectors in space cancel, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, so mm -hmm. these VSC, these variable speed CMG devices actually are uh, basically CMGs, regular CMGs on gimbals. So you can use the angular momentum, you can move the angular momentum, but you can also 
spin the wheel about uh, the direction. We have two, two axes actually of control for these types of devices. It's a little bit complicated if you know a little bit about CMGs, how you control them. But uh, if you do it right, it's pretty cool actually. Uh, what they can, what we can, you can achieve with these devices. Okay, I see. So, so a variable CMG not only controls the the direction that you're pushing the CM, the the you know the direction that you're rotating the spinning wheel, but also how fast the wheel is going. Yeah. And like you said, that gets you two axes, two degrees of freedom. Two yeah. axes. Yeah. And they're so, orthogonal. Mean, yeah, exactly. If you if you go back to your uh, physics, if I put my educator hat right now, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, basically, the torque that applied on a, anywhere, on anybody, is uh, proportional to the rate of change of the angular momentum, if you go back to your original physics. So, so mm -hmm. momentum is a vector. So either you change the direction or you change the magnitude, that's, you still produce the torque, right? So <clears throat> by gimbaling, um, the wheel, you change the direction of the angular momentum you sp by spinning up or down the wheel, you change the magnitude. Then you can do mm -hmm. both at the same time. So reaction mm -hmm. wheels only change magnitude. Regular CMGs only change the direction. So variable speed CMGs do both at the same time. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Makes sense? Yeah, 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 that's that's a great way of explaining it. And do you've, are variable CMGs, uh, is that a hardware difference or just a software difference where you say, okay, I'm going to control both of these? Um, it is a little bit of both. Uh, the reason is that uh, for regular, it's a modification of a regular CMG where now you have an inner the so-called inner loop, you have a control loop to control the, uh, uh, the, the the speed of the wheel. Typically in CMGs, when you de develop them, you spin them up in a, con you know, a constant speed, right? Like so you have 5,000 RPM, you keep it there. And now you have to make sure that you're able to control also the, the speed of the wheel. So there is some a little bit extra uh, control loop, and this may be modify the kind of motor that you may want to use in the along the spin right. axis, right? Uh, but uh, right. I would say primarily it's a software software or control issue because you have one more extra thing to to to, to worry about. You just don't control about a constant velocity or speed. In this case, you 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 want to track a particular speed. So it's a little bit more complicated, but not that much more complicated. Yeah, and then to achieve perfect control over a vehicle if each variable speed cmg has got two vectors that it can control like if you had no redundancy in theory you could just have two variable speed cmgs mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and have full attitude control right correct yep because you have four axes correct yeah if you had three variable speed cmgs could they also desaturate each other um Potentially, if they can, if they can actually use um, um, not all of them at the same time, but you can use the wheel of one to desaturate the other. Typically, desaturation is uh, is done using thrusters, um, uh -huh. um, hmm. uh, just to to reset the wheels. Because what may happen is you desaturate one wheel, but then you start saturating the other. So it's kind of like a zero sum game, right? Um, mm -hmm. But if you have one of the wheels has an issue, so you can do that. You can take some of the momentum to other wheels, but then at some point you have to desaturate the other wheel. So typically you use thrusters to okay. desaturate the wheels if, if, it, if it happens to be the case. But uh, going to your previous question, yeah, because if each, each of these devices has two degrees of freedom, um, right? Um, basically you have two of those, you have four degrees of freedom if you properly put them in a certain configuration that is not a silly configuration that you can uh, generate three three uh, three axis control. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think our listeners are going to be pretty familiar with the idea of saturation in a reaction wheel, 
where, you know, eventually, you know, your losses, you know, I mean, ultimately down to heat, um, wind up with you spinning that wheel faster than your motor can keep up. And so it saturates and you really can't use it for control anymore. Yes. And then you use thrusters to desaturate it. Could you um, explain what saturation looks like in a CMG? Because I feel like that's less intuitive. Uh, the CMG do not saturate. Um, the. I mean, you're talking about the variable speed CMG, right? The CMG, as I mentioned, is just uh, yeah. CMG is the typically you just it's a gimbal wheel. It's uh, it is uh, it is operated at constant speed, right? So it doesn't really saturate. You just set it at five thousand RPM. There's no problem there. The, the issue with CMG is that you may get in a configuration that let's say locks up uh, in sense in the sense that you cannot produce torque in a particular direction is a so-called gimbal lock but for the vscmgs mm. you may have this issue yeah right remember the variable speed cmgs maybe you have this issue where you may saturate if the wheel starts spinning a lot so actually in the paper that we wrote when we developed this algorithm for vscmgs uh, we also introduced uh, an algorithm that keeps track of the speed of each wheel don't and doesn't let doesn't let one of the wheels you know spin too fast and the other will spin too slow right you can try to keep them perhaps perhaps uh, if you want to uh, spin around the same speed uh, but uh, that that speed could be not, may not be necessarily constant so how does gimbal lock work in a in a cmg then uh, it may happen that uh, remember that um, uh, as i mentioned the uh, it's, a, it's a device that is very interesting actually the first time i teach to undergraduate students they always like uh, <laughs> look me with puzzle because it's a it's an interesting <laughs> it's a complicated phenomenon that you have three axes uh, you have the gimbal axis and you have the uh, the spin axis and you have the torque axis and all of them are perpendicular to one it's a very uh, like three-dimensional phenomenon right so you put mm. uh, a little uh, torque in one axis and you get another torque about a perpendicular axis and while the spin is, is on the third axis so it's a it's a it's all three axes um taking into consideration so uh, it may happen that you have two of these devices uh, perhaps uh, they as they move around so the direction about which you can generate a torque, of course, depends where the spin axis is because that's perpendicular. And if your spin axis it's always changing, you may end up in a case that is not fixed in, in a spacecraft, so to speak, right? So uh, it may come to a case that you want to generate a torque about a particular direction, but your spin axis is aligned with this direction now, so you cannot do that, for example. Does it make sense? Because your spin axis mm -hmm. moving all the time, and the torque that you can generate is always perpendicular to that. So since the spin axis is moving because you gimbal this, is not fixed on the body. So it may happen that you may want to generate control or torque about a particular direction. And it just happened that at that point, your configuration of the gimbal is such that it cannot produce the torque about that particular configuration. That's kind of what's going on. Um, and uh, the scenario is a little bit more complicated if you have many of those and you can there are certain configurations that they kind of kind of cancel each other so you don't basically you cannot get torque about particular configurations when you need them um, and you have to be careful how you uh, plan your maneuvers in order to avoid this so that's kind of the this is kind of the idea and how how do you like what does your strategy look like to actually keep them from from locking each other like like how, i can't even imagine how you would how you would plan to to handle that situation hmm. well there is a lot of 
Well, this, I mean, this is a kind of an active area of research. There are several ideas. The most common one is that if this is happens momentarily, right, and just happens uh, that at this particular location, just let it be for like a couple of, you know, half a second, let it drift, and then it will, it will not be stuck in this configuration. And then you basically go on the other side, so to speak, of the singularity, and then you take mm. over. So you let, it, you let it be momentarily. So what happens, of course, is for like a half a second, you don't track as closely as you can. But if you can afford that, then you, you, you go back to tracking your target. So that's one scenario. Uh, a more uh, proactive or fit forward, so to speak, scenario is if you know the maneuver or you know what you're going to track in the future, uh, then you can plan ahead the trajectory. And because there are many, uh, op many options, you can choose an option that will not hit the singularity. So the first one is more reactive, so to speak, um, a way of handling the problem. And this, the latter one is more proactive. So the proactive works if you know what kind of disturbances you're going to see in the future, uh, how the spacecraft is going to move in the future, right? You know that the is going around the Earth, so you know how you're going to target uh, the spacecraft or the, the, the antenna, whatever, in a particular way. So you know over an orbit how the antenna is going to move more or less. Um, so then you can handle it. But if you have something unexpected and you want to take care of that, uh, then you have to go to more a reactive mode and then maybe you get to a situation that uh, you need to use one of the, the previous approach where you, okay, you let it go a little bit, lose tracking for like a half a second and then and then keep tracking again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about peer-to-peer -peer refueling? Because uh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, you, you dug up a, a, an old paper of mine, I think. <laughs> um, that was um, something that we did uh, several years back. And again, this is a conceptual study. It came about because of the following question I had, um, and the question was, uh, the current state of, uh, of satellites is, to me at least, is, um, it's not satisfying. It's not satisfying. Uh, you have a very expensive spacecraft. Uh, some of these, especially the DOD spacecraft, can cost like close to a billion dollars sometimes. It's very expensive, some of those. Uh, in any case, there are millions and millions of dollars. And uh, these are good spacecraft, and then you use them in space. Um, they do what they want to do, uh, and then after a while, they run out of fuel, and at that point, you just decommission them. Now, you have a very, very capable spacecraft, very expensive, and after five or six years, you just decommission it, right? It's like buying a Ferrari, fueling, and then drive about 100, 100 miles, and then, you, <laughs> and then you let it go and buy a new one. It doesn't make too much sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. uh, of course, the problem is that you cannot refuel satellites in space. We don't have... Um, you know, uh, gas stations. Maybe in the future we will have, but right now we don't. So the idea to me at the time was if, however, you wanted to refuel our satellites in space, what would be the most, the best way to do it, right? Especially if you want to refuel a constellation of satellites, not only one. If it's only one, you just send a, you know, a, a little uh, gas tank, let's put it this way, you refuel it and what have you. But let's say you have a constellation uh, maybe a 30 satellites and, uh, <clears throat> going around in the same orbit of some sort, and you want to refuel all of them. How, how, what is the best way to refuel it? You have a couple of options there, right? Uh, one option is to send uh, the gas, <laughs> the gas station, uh, and goes around and refuels one after the other. Okay. Um, of course, the question is, is refueling one after the other the, the optimal way of doing it? I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, the other option is you station the gas station somewhere in another orbit, and then each one of those uh, satellites goes there, refuels, and comes back. 
Okay. Is that uh, a better way than the previous one? I don't know. And the third one is maybe what we call peer-to-peer -peer fueling is maybe maybe you do something kind of uh, both. So you refuel half of them and this, uh, and these satellites refuel the other half, right? So you can uh, think of it like sharing the fuel in some sense. Now, the reason this is an interesting problem is because of the orbital mechanics. And the orbital mechanics sometimes are counterintuitive. <laughs> uh, something that is close to you uh, in terms of geometric distance, maybe not close to you in terms of how much fuel you're going to spend to go there. <clears throat> Does this make sense? So, uh, and this is an interesting problem to me because it was a coupled problem, coupled problem in the sense that you want to deliver fuel, but at the same time you burn fuel to deliver fuel, if you wish. So it was not clear, just looking at the problem, what was the best uh, scenario um, to refuel a constellation of satellites. Uh, if you're familiar with operations research, the traveling salesman problem, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, you want to visit mm -hmm. a bunch of depots and you want to deliver something, you go to throw all of them and you want to figure out at which, at which, uh, with which order you're going to visit <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, your clients by to, to minimize uh, total uh, length of the path, let's, let's say. It's kind of a similar case. However, now the problem becomes more complicated because, because of the orbital mechanics. It's not clear who is closer to you, so to speak. Uh, anyways, to make a long story short, uh, we uh, came up with this peer-to-peer uh, -peer refueling scenario that shows that depending how much time you have to refuel, uh, let's say you want to refuel in two orbits or three orbits or five orbits, whatever, uh, it turned out that this peer-to-peer -peer refueling option where you refuel half of them and these satellites refuel the other half turns out to be better than uh, the other options that uh, a single satellite that that was this that was this investigation and this was part of uh, a problem for uh, thinking a little bit more generally about the problem of our, uh, infrastructure and architecture in space like supply chain of fuel in space i mean what how how are you gonna how are you gonna do that i'm guessing that all these satellites have to be pretty much in the same orbit right and then they just kind of you know fuel their neighbor and they pass it along is that kind of what the scenario looks yeah like? yeah we looked at the but they don't have to be in the same orbit uh could be constellations that you have uh, some of the satellites in one orbit maybe another satellites in a different orbit you can have that different eccentricities and so on but yeah uh what we looked uh here was uh satellites on the same orbit uh, same inclination yeah that was okay. the simplest scenario. And, and you're really talking about just one or two orbits to do their rendezvous, and then who knows how long it takes to actually transfer the fuel because that's not something that we really do outside of a couple of you know specialized mm -hmm. experiments on ISS. And then one or two orbits to get home. So 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 if if we're talking on the order of one or two orbits, um, that's I mean that's very short amounts of time to go from you know, one position in the orbit to another. Um, did you um, find, is there a quick answer to how many satellites you need in say a circular orbit it's spaced out evenly before peer to peer is no longer worthwhile if you're constraining it down to a couple of orbits? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, if you look at the, if you, if you want to I mean, look at the paper, you can see the study. Basically, it shows that uh, two orbits or whatever orbits is just um, a number that um, uh, we picked up. It doesn't, it, it basically, it could be three, could be four. I don't remember what the number of orbits depends on the, uh, depends on the, uh, also the altitude of the orbit. It, may, it depends on many mm -hmm. things, but essentially the equations are there. You can do this parametric study 
uh, and you can see at which time it makes sense. If, if you have a lot of time, it doesn't make sense to do that. It's better to have one satellite go around and refueling, I think, if I remember correctly, or some time ago. But if you want to, if you restrain the time, constrain the time at which you want to achieve the refueling, I think it turns out at this point, uh, this peer-to-peer -peer refueling was um, was beating the other or the other uh, cases. And now that was, again, for the scenario that we, we investigated. I don't remember how many satellites we had. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but if you really want to have a particular uh, scenario with X number of satellites at the particular orbit, you can run the the algorithm and you can figure out uh, if it makes sense or not. It was just a particular. It was just a different um, architecture, or a different <clears throat> different um, way of uh, refueling a constellation of satellites that was a little bit different than uh, the current, more uh, than the, at the time at least, uh, the classical uh, way of thinking that I will send one satellite and refuel all of them and that will be done with it. And mm -hmm. me, this may or may not be optimal in terms of fuel consumption, of course. Or, or, you know, in terms of overall life of the spacecraft too, because if you're doing peer-to-peer, -peer, you can't fill your tank up 100%, like by definition. So yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so interesting to see there, there's so many different situations, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you cannot, I mean, when, when you discuss about refueling, you don't have to think about there is a tank that you have to fill. You can basically have tanks that you carry and deliver to other uh, to mm -hmm. other clients, right? It's like uh, like the gas bottle or something, right? You, it's, 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 it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you have to necessarily put fuel in a tank. Maybe there's a fuel tank, you just you know, deliver the fuel, you know. Uh, but you're right, yeah, oh, sure. but you're right. Uh, that, uh, that makes sense, yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes space so interesting is there are so many different situations and so many different solutions and not every single solution applies to every single situation and finding these you know, alternatives is just, is well, so the, cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the cool about orbital mechanics is that it's not, sometimes uh, it is not a very uh, common sense, uh, the way we tend to think about how things move in, in, in reality, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Something, because mm -hmm. something is close to me in distance, uh, it may be expensive to me <laughs> to go there. Uh, it is kind of counterintuitive because of the orbital mechanics and how expensive it is to change orbits and things like that. Uh, it, things that seems to be obvious um, uh, and intuitive uh, when you discuss about objects um, in, you know, on Earth, it is not the same uh, when, when it is in space. Uh, that's kind of the cool thing, actually. So I, I guess in practice, this would kind of like, like, as I'm just trying to visualize, it would mean something like, you know, making a burn at your apogee, and then that way you can get into a different orbit, like as opposed to trying to just move directly to yeah, correct. the next satellite over. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and David kind of gets into an interesting, um, an interesting area. When you're doing this, are you doing all Hohmann transfers in your algorithm? Or are you assuming that there are other um, transfer methods that that might be used? Uh, for that particular scenario, I don't remember. If you do Oman transfers, that's cheap, but it takes a long time. I think mm -hmm. we um, try to remember now. Again, it was like a paper we wrote <laughs> like almost 20 years ago. Um, I think we looked also at Lambert, tra Lambert transfers when you have a particular time that you need to hit uh, the, you know, the target. Oman is good, uh, but it, take, it consumes less fuel, but it takes a long time, right? But if somebody tells you, I want to go there, you know, in like, I don't know, an hour or something, then you'll not be able to do that with our own transfer. You have to do some, I think it's, it's, it's a Lambert transfer. Um, it's a little bit more complicated. And I, I try to remember in this paper, if what kind of transfer we have to have to look it up it was a long time ago we did this paper yeah well, well, I think I think that's a great um, segue. Could you talk about what 
you know, what lamb, cause I, I saw a paper that you wrote that was on, uh, solving or utilize, I don't remember, um, but, um, multiple revolution Lambert solutions. Like, can you, can you talk about what, uh, what a Lambert transfer is and, and why it's important? Lambert, yeah, I mean, it's a classical problem is basically going from one orbit to the other, uh, but you have, uh, you limit the time at which you want to do that, right? So, uh, there is a, there is a, it's a classical problem, uh, for many, many years. Um, and what we, uh, shown typically, it may, it may happen that the solution, it's not a direct transfer. You may want to do a couple of transfer before you, a uh, couple of revolutions before you, um, before you hit the um, uh, the place that you want to hit. Um, and at that point, uh, typically these are known, but it was complicated to compute multiple revolution tra uh, Lambert transfers. In this paper, we uh, uh, looked away. Uh, we found a way that you can do it in an efficient manner. Uh, that was it. But Lambert transfer, if you take a Orbital Mechanics 101, this is one of the things that you, you learn very quickly how to, 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 to compute this Lambert transfer. It has an elegant solution, actually, based on the geometry. The nice thing about Orbital Mechanics, going back to, uh, to what you said, it's so beautiful because it's it based on geometry. Uh, at least mm. for me, geometry, I mean, I love geometry. I mean, I, I, I tend to think uh, by visualizing things in my mind, even if it's abstract concepts, I try to create a, a visual representation of, of the thing I'm trying to solve. So um, I like this fact about uh, the, they use the conics and the ellipses and uh, all that stuff. And it, it, it's fascinating. I think that's kind of the, it's, it's, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the solutions are very clean, very beautiful. So Yeah, well, we'll have to maybe have you back to talk about the theory of of uh, Lambert's problem because it's it's pretty cool. Okay, yeah, with the with the short amount of time that we have left, um did you want to talk about um visual navigation and you also had an interesting paper that I saw on cooperative relative navigation? Yeah, so this is the work that we're doing now, so there's a little bit uh we'll discuss a little bit more is more recent. So when you asked me uh, earlier what have we been using the Astros for uh, and start discussing about the work that we did 15 years ago for the variable speed DMGs and uh, the coordinated uh, <laughs> problem of attitude to control an energy. So these days we're using it to test cooperative and primarily non-cooperative rendezvous um, uh, using vision-based um, means like cameras and things like that. Um, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the difference, cooperative rendezvous is the rendezvous where you rendezvous and docking where you go to meet with another satellite and the, the other satellite is helping you in some way. For example, you may have fid uh, fiducials, may have certain markers, uh, maybe transmitting um, transmitting radio signals, radio beacons, and things like that. So, the, so it's a cooperative, mm -hmm. right? This is typically the case when you want to go and dock with a space station, with a right. But it maybe uh, want to go and meet and dock with an uncooperative target just because either because it's a space debris or because the satellite was decommissioned, is tumbling in space, or maybe it's an asteroid, whatever. Um, so it doesn't have that. So so the, obviously the first one is a little bit more easy because you have more flexibility, you have more more data. Data, more measurements to solve the problem. And the second one, of course, is more difficult. Um, so we primarily, uh, right now, interested in non-cooperative. Uh, we have a project with NASA, for example, uh, for for um, going circumnavigating asteroids and using mm -hmm. um, cameras. We can reconstruct um, using certain imaging processing techniques the asteroid, the shape of the asteroid, how big it is. Uh, we can estimate its uh, moment of inertia and the mass. Um, and we can do a lot of things just using um, basically cameras. And uh, this is um, this is for asteroids. You can do the same thing for for satellites. If you want to um, 
meet and dock with a satellite, um, you can also uh, use sim similar techniques uh, to do that. So this is what our focus is uh, these days. It's very cool. Are, are you focusing on the actual visual processing side or the control side? A little bit of both. Primarily, right now, we're still trying to understand a little bit the, the vision, the, um, the image processing side. Um, the, we borrow techniques from a robotics literature uh, that used in, uh, in ground application. There is a lot of work in this area, obviously, because of uh, all this interest in autonomous driving and all that stuff, right? People developing mm -hmm. these very sophisticated algorithms for image processing, image recognition, scene recognitions and all that, and, and localization and mapping. Uh, all these things falls under the term SLAM, if you have heard the term SLAM, simultaneous localization and mapping. So the question for me and my students was, all right, we have all these cool techniques that have been developed for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, that at least for ground applications have been shown to be extremely, extremely good, right? Uh, we're doing cool stuff these days with these techniques. How many of these can be applied for, uh, uh, for things that we want to do in space? It's not clear uh, because of the um, orbital mechanics because of the peculiarities of space, um, the high contracts, the illumination conditions. There are many different uh, issues here. Plus the fact that typically in space you don't have the sophisticated uh, GPU units and computers that mm. typically you have for ground applications. So the question is: it, Is it possible to transfer some of these ideas there for this? So this is what we're focusing on. So it's kind of a mixed bag, if you ask me. Some of the techniques. Uh, are borrowed from what people use for ground applications, but we try to tailor them and see if we can uh, modify them uh, in a specific way to be able to solve the problems that we have specifically uh, in space. That's cool. I, I wish we had time to talk more about that because that's really interesting. All right. And our penultimate question is, where would you like to be found on the internet? In the show notes, we'll have uh, links to a LinkedIn page and then also um, the DCS uh, lab page uh, on Georgia Tech's website. Yeah, that's that's the two of them are good. I think DSL actually is the one that has more information about what we do, and you can also find my phone number. Um, but if you want to reach me, for good or bad, my name is kind of unusual. If you Google it, the first thing that shows up is me. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's easy to, to, to find me if you want to add uh, either my email or a phone number or my address. So Panos... Assuming you're nice and comfy and safe and have life support and all this other good stuff, <laughs> if you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? Uh, the pictures of my family. That's a good one. <laughs> yes, a good uh, that was, I think, one of our fastest reactions just yeah. Say, yeah. right away. <laughs> well, great. I, I guess we need to let you go uh, see, see said family. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, this week in Spaceflight History, so uh, we have a couple of winners, and we had a couple of incorrect guesses, all of which were valiant tries, and I kind of like them because, you know, they were sort of like wrong for the right reasons. That's probably not the right way to put that, but, you know, um, some pretty good guesses. But uh, our winners are Deskin Miller and Julian Martin. Uh, those are the only two, and uh, the clue was a bureaucratic Voltron. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I won't spoil anything else, so what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so like... Uh... You said there were some other really good guesses uh, because, you know, a bureaucratic Voltron, right? If you remember Voltron, the uh, classic cartoon about different things coming together to form, you know, the big uh, robot. And so um, 
the clues uh, were great, or the answers were great. Ben uh, Hallert had one where, you know, he pointed out that there was a Cosmos 3M launch that involved seven satellites from five different countries uh, all being integrated on the same flight, which is, you know, a combination, you know, that could have worked. Although I like that he thought that might count more like uh, cat herding, especially pre-smallsat industry. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then um, uh, the Greek also had a great uh, one that could have worked as well, which was the last flight of an Ariane 5G, mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, being developed by ESA, which has 22 countries, those parts yeah. are coming from all over that, you know, continent. <laughs> and so um, his tweet also included uh, a picture of his, uh, he still has his Voltron. And so I'm a bit jealous there, but that looks like a good solid uh, Voltron, the, especially the wear and tear on the uh, giant sword blade thing. <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. So the actual event, though, was on the 1st of October 2003. It was the formation of JAXA. Right? That's what I had intended. JAXA, the Japanese uh, Aerospace Exploration Agency. And so, uh, or it's more official uh, uh, title, the uh, National Research and Development Agency on Aerospace Research and Development, um, <laughs> which uh, we talked just about last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, so just smooth like butter. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so to talk about the formation of JAXA and why it, you know, was a bureaucratic Voltron, we need to talk about a few other things first. So uh, first is uh, basically, you know, the, the, the father of, you know, rocketry in um in japan uh hideo itokawa uh, or dr rocket as he was called so this was a uh, researcher at the university of tokyo and uh does itokawa sound familiar to you guys well the name does but i don't know if that specific mm. one although maybe even the first and last i don't know well itokawa right that's the asteroid that um hayabusa oh. There you go. And so, yeah, so that asteroid Itokawa is named after uh, this uh, gentleman in particular. So uh, it all begins, uh, you know, with the pencil rockets that uh, Itokawa was launching back in 1955. And so these were, I mean, they were, <laughs> they were like the size of a pencil, essentially, right? You're talking 21 centimeters long. So I guess that's a little long for a pencil. Uh, and uh, just shy of two centimeters in diameter, 200 grams of just the um, rocket itself, uh, uh, excluding the propellant. And uh, I love that, you know, in Wikipedia, for example, they talk about how they were single stage. So indeed, your 21 centimeter uh, rocket did not have multiple stages. It was just a single one. It, this sounds like just such a wild thing, because apparently this was happening in fairly crowded parts around Tokyo. In 1955, where they just, you know, had this trench uh, from an old, you know, gun manufacturing f factory, and they would just horizontally launch like a series of these rockets. And sometimes um, they they'd adjust the parameters like, oh, let's let's move it a little farther away from the target, because essentially there was a there's a whole bunch of screens, wire, uh, thin wire screens that they were kind of flying the rockets through and puncturing before they would land in a sandpit, because these things could get up to like 140 meters per second. <laughs> and just, you know, with a tenth of a second burn time, it sounded like kind of just like a fun thing to watch <laughs> for bystanders. But this was yeah. uh, uh, the, the start of, you know, rocketry in Japan. <laughs> You know, like I said, he was he was he was a you know an academic uh, at the University of Tokyo. His group and his team, you know, ended up launching a, a solid rocket uh, called K6 uh, in 1958. Three years later, as a contribution to the uh, International uh, Geophysical Year, right, which is a big deal, right? You remember everybody was kind of doing different things in spaceflight as well as like exploration all around the Earth to kind of 
demonstrate scientific prowess back then, specifically for these IGYs. And then ultimately, uh, his team became, um, you know, uh, an official institute, uh, the Institute of Space and Aeronautical Science, or ISAS, uh, in 1964. Um, a few decades later, the name changed a bit, so it still exists to this day as the uh, Institute for uh, space and astronautical uh, science. Um, uh, since 1981, it's been called that, so that's what to look up. But the acronym stays the same, ISAS. I think of them as like the JPL, right? You know, they're they're the kind of you know academic side that's you know uh, developing a lot of the satellites and spacecraft uh, uh, that you know have been coming out of Japan for decades now. And so uh, they they were the ones responsible for Osumi, which was the first uh, Japanese satellite in 1970 that launched on a uh, L4S rocket, and and um, since then, uh, ISAS has sent more than 30 spacecraft to uh, LEO and beyond. So ISAS, that's going to be part one of the Voltron. <laughs> uh, part two is NASDA. Where, um, which is the National Space Development Agency, uh, NASDA, NASDA. And, um, you might recognize this, you know, this is what's written on the side of the, uh, Kibo, uh, module on the International Space Station, right? You notice it doesn't say JAXA up there. And mm -hmm. so, um, this was established almost 15 years after, you know, these pencil rockets were being blasted around Tokyo. Uh, uh, so in 1969, um, this was kind of a more official government body version, right? You know, you couldn't just leave it rocketry to just the academics. And so um, space's importance was being better recognized in the 60s as, you know, just for like improving society, essentially, right? There, it's for communications, weather broadcasting, you know, emergency uh, relief efforts, things like that. And so uh, it was established with the aim of developing uh, liquid fuel launch vehicles and, as well as satellites. Unlike ISAS, uh, NASDA uh, received assistance from the U.S. Uh, directly. Uh, the United States and Japan have been kind of working together and coordinating on a lot of different things uh, for the last 80 years or so. In particular, right, NASDA uh, developed, you know, kind of the first, well, they've been developing all the rockets that come from Japan, right? But the first three, uh, the N1, the N2, and the H1, uh, were all based on Thor Delta technology. So again, that, you know, technological sharing between us, uh, keep saying us, <laughs> I, I am an American, but yeah, the United States and Japan. <laughs> and so the N1, um, the Japanese N1, you would recognize uh, or you'd be able to find by using the Roman numeral one pass right? Because the N1 is, of course, infamously the, the absolute gigantic uh, Soviet uh, rocket, right? The Saturn yeah. V kind of competitor. You know, if you wanted to Google this N1, uh, use a Roman numeral. <laughs> it had a Thor ELT first stage, uh, three caster solid rocket motors, right? So those casters that, you know, just last week we were talking about how, you know, much of a workhorse they are. It had a second stage that was a, uh, a Japanese-built uh, LE three rocket uh, by Mitsubishi Heavy Industries uh, specifically, and uh, could also adopt a uh, optional third stage, uh, a solid rocket um, Star 37N uh, motor up there. And so it had uh, six uh, out of seven launches were successful between 75 and 82. The unsuccessful one, I believe, was due to that third stage. And so that was the N1, you know, pretty good uh, taking uh, Japanese uh, uh, spacecraft and satellites to space in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, and then the next generation, the N2, uh, changed things a bit. Uh, it still had that same Thor ELT first stage, but now you had nine caster sod rocket motors, so that's just an awful lot <laughs> to be strapped on there, but they fit. Uh, it 
it now had a, a Delta F second stage, so you know this one uh, didn't have any kind of uh, indigenously built Japanese engines on it because uh, the third stage was again one of these uh, Star uh, uh, stages, uh, Star uh, motors, uh, Star 37E or Burner 2, which you know even though the name is very different, it's like another star. It's the same family, uh, and so these uh, were uh, the N2 rocket flew uh, eight successful launches, 100% uh, success rate. Uh, between 81 and 87 and then they moved on to the next successor the h1 which was uh, the same as the n2 uh, except you know you could kind of dial it up or down whether you wanted six or nine uh, solid rocket motors um, the upper stage was again a uh, japanese built rocket uh, but a more uh, a new and improved uh, uh, version the le5 and then it had a, a different solid third stage and then uh, this h1 flew uh, nine out of nine successful missions from 86 to 92. And so uh, at that point, right, we recognize, you know, H1, well, presumably, right, that gave rise to the H2, the H2A, and the H2B, right, that we know to this day. And uh, indeed, that is, you know, the lineage there. And um, the kind of difference, uh, th those all evolved in a similar way. But uh, the upshot is, is that at this point, the H2, the H2A, and the H2B all were kind of built with... Uh, Japanese engines. And so it was no longer kind of relying on that Thor uh, Delta technology from the United States. At that point, uh, I guess Japanese rocketry had matured to the point where they could kind of uh, build their own rockets uh, themselves. Uh. And what's kind of cool is going from the N2 to H1, the big difference in that third stage was that they went from an American-made star engine to a Japanese-made uh, engine. I think it's I think it was made by like Nissan, like Nissan Heavy Industries or Nissan Space. I don't remember. Um, huh. But like they they had already started going domestic at that point, which is kind of cool. So there's uh, so there's two of the the key pieces to this bureaucratic Voltron. We've got the ISAS. Um, you know Hideo Itakawa's founded. Uh, you know the the academic side. You got NASDA, which is the kind of government. You know uh, forward facing rocket building side of Japanese the Japanese space flight industry. And then you had also the uh, National Aerospace Laboratory of Japan or NAL. And uh, this one also has uh, old roots uh, going back to 1950. It was formed as an auxiliary body to the prime minister's office. But the upshot is that this is one that kind of really focused research on aircraft, rockets, and other uh, aeronautical transportation systems, as well as uh, peripheral technology. And so you've got these three uh, different groups that have been around since the 50s and 60s. Then, you know, here's where it all comes together, right? On, uh, on <laughs> October 1st, 2003, uh, like this absolutely glorious uh, bureaucratic Voltron they had assembled. And so this is um, <laughs> uh, Deskin Miller uh, gets, you know, super extra credit points for generating this amazing image that we'll, we'll, we'll link in our show notes where, uh, you know, we've got Voltron, you know, hovering in uh, low Earth orbit, I guess. And uh, the ISAS and uh, NAL are labeled as, you know, the right and left legs specifically. And then you've got just above the, uh, the head of Voltron, the NASDA, and they had come together to form this giant whopping JAXA logo, reaching for the skies, exploring space. And so <laughs> it's, it's just such a wonderful image. Thank you, Deskin, for mm -hmm. uh, sharing that with us. And so that's that's the idea there, that just like this trope, which existed before Voltron, um, you know, it was actually, you know, Japanese uh, uh, manga or anime that kind of originally had this sort of robots coming together. Uh, but I figured Voltron was the most famous one uh, <laughs> that we know of. Yeah, so. I think so. 
the reason Jack's formed in the first place was it looks like it was due to basically um, a bureaucratic reorganization at an even higher level. Uh, the Science and Technology Agency of the government oversaw NASDA had combined with the Ministry of Education, which oversaw ISAS. You know, since these ministries were coming together, that would basically sweep NASDA and ISAS together. And I guess they snuck the NAL in there as well. And so that's kind of the logic for why this reorganization happened. And I mean, you know, JAXA is such a, you know, I mean, JAXA and Japanese spaceflight is so synonymous. And yet, right, only 17 years it's been around. Mm. It's not as old as Chandra <laughs> and XMN mm. Newton. Um, mm. At least not Chandra. I don't know exactly when XMN Newton was launched, but yeah. Since uh, then, kind of the other, there's so much that they've done. And so, you know, those are going to be popping up, I'm sure, in other spaceflight histories. And so I didn't want to talk about what JAX has done since 2003. But just uh, one thing I thought that was pretty interesting, a, a big change as far as administrative, higher level, uh, organizational um goals and whatnot, was that uh, the basic space law was passed uh, by the Japanese Diet in 2008 for setting goals in space. Because now, you know, this is, you know, five years after you've got this new organization um, that's kind of consolidated all the various, you know, spaceflight uh, organizations in, in Japan. And uh, there are five kind of uh, goals in this basic space law. The first one was to improve everyday life of Japanese citizens. Japan's got some amazing uh, weather satellites, uh, some of the best images. What's it? Himiwari? You get some really, really, really good ones from Himiwari. And so uh, check that out. And in fact, if I'm seeing a recent one in real time, I think you could see a lot of these cyclones right now. So a second goal of this uh, basic space law is to strengthen security. Um, even though Japan has a pacifist uh, constitution, um, it's found ways to basically deploy military forces. And, you know, with specifically uh, North Korea, you know, has been launching uh, missiles over Japanese territory since the 90s. And so, as you can imagine, there was an impetus on them to be able to actually have, you know, reconnaissance satellites, although they're always kind of framed as non-military, you know, crisis management satellites and things like that. Uh, the third goal is to encourage Japan's space industry, which I think it's done a, a great job with that. Uh, international cooperation, right? That's why Japan's one of the big players, always kind of at the table when it comes to, you know, the International Space Station or just, you know, different international missions. They might build an instrument that gets put on a Mars rover and whatnot. And so, and then the fifth goal is advancing science and technology, which, uh, again, we know all these amazing JAXA missions, the both Hayabusa's. We talked at the top of the show how they, you know, are planning to put uh, kind of a very important, uh, very uh, uh, an X-ray telescope that will be very well received, um, that people are really uh, interested in. You know, they've gone to Venus, which Venus has been so underexplored since uh, Magellan that, you know, basically ESA and JAXA have really been the only two uh, sending spacecraft there. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's correct, but if I'm wrong... I don't think I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there might have been flybys. I'm not including flybys, but I think the only two orbiters of Venus in the last, you know, 20 some 30 years has been, you know, ESA and JAXA. And so anyway, just pointing out that whether that's true or not, the fact that JAXA has been to Venus, JAXA has been to asteroids, JAXA has done sample returns. I mean, they're just a, a really badass agency that um, really for a country of its, you know, size, I think it, it still punches above its weight. You know, it's not like Japan's a small country, but it's still its space industry is just amazing, yeah. I think. And uh, that's this week in spaceflight history. Cool. All right. Well, next week in spaceflight history, uh, we have a very crazy clue. Um, <laughs> this is the longest clue ever um, and probably the, the most precise one. So the clue is, and I'm not going to sing it because we all know the song, I would walk 1,496,225 kilometers and I would walk 1,496,225 more and I would walk 1,496,225 more just to be the satellite that walked 
yes, walked 4,488,675 kilometers to fall down at your door. So some of that you need to think, you know, more metaphorically or whatever, because obviously satellites don't walk that part, I think I can safely say. Um, and they don't fall down at doors. But if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. And yeah, that was Ben's clue, by the way. <laughs> Not mine. Sorry. Sorry. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events, just uh, just two launches. First up, we've got uh, a Falcon 9 that'll be taking uh, U.S. Air Force's uh, GPS-3 uh, SVO-4. And so it looks like this is the fourth uh, third-gen uh, GPS satellite. And uh, this launch is on September 29th or 30th, depending on where you are. It has a window of 0155 to 0210 UTC on the 30th or uh, 955 to 1010 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the 29th. With a launch out of uh, you know at Slick Forty in uh, at the Cape. Uh, next up, we had mentioned this last week. We're just going to mention it again because I'm not sure why we mentioned it last week. There must have been an update. We have the Antares, and that's launching with NG14, which is a mission to uh, the International Space Station. So yeah, that is the 15th Cygnus cargo mission to station. So this is launching from Pad Zero A, and that is of course launching out of Wallops in Virginia, and uh, that will be at 02:27 UTC or the previous day at. 10:27 p.m. Uh, here on the East Coast. And just to be clear, then th- these could potentially be within uh, 20 minutes of each other. So if you're up for one, uh, stick around for the other, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. And then that Cygnus cargo vehicle is going to be arriving at station on Saturday, October 3rd. Um, coverage will begin on NASA TV at four at 3:45 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, capture is scheduled at 5:15 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, installation coverage. Coverage uh, will start at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Well, then let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out Twitter or Reddit for links. We're a horrible podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right. So we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.